Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Schott, a senior fellow here, and it's my pleasure today to, uh, to chair uh, a discussion on the future of oil and fiscal sustainability in the GCC region, the Gulf Cooperation Council region. Uh, it's a new uh, study uh, recently uh, published by the International Monetary Fund, and we are pleased to have the, uh, some of the authors uh, to uh, present the study uh, to the group and, uh, and uh, discussion of it. Uh, we, uh, we will start with an introduction uh, by Jihad Anzur, who is the director of the International Monetary Fund's Middle East and Central Asia Department, has been in that position since March of 2017. Uh, he previously served as the finance minister of Lebanon and has had a wide range of posts in the private sector, including at McKinsey and Booz Allen. Uh, after his introduction of the study, uh, we will have uh, a more detailed discussion of the report uh, by uh, two of the authors, uh, Andrea Pescatori, who's the chief of the commodities unit of the research department of the IMF and associate editor of the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking. He previously was an economist on the, uh, uh, in the Western Hemisphere Department and uh, also in the Research Department. His major field of expertise uh, is energy economics and commodity markets, international finance, and asset prices. Uh, we will also have a, a presentation by uh, Tokir Mirzoev, a uh, senior economist in the IMF's Middle East and Central Asia Department, uh, currently working on the United Arab Emirates. He previously worked in the European as well as st strategy, policy, and review departments, and also serves as the IMF's resident representative in Pakistan and Moldova. Following uh, the discussion of the report, we will turn to two distinguished uh, commentators, uh, Samantha Gross, who is a fellow in the Foreign Policy uh, Division at the Brookings Institution across the street, welcome neighbor, and uh, whose work focuses on energy markets and geopolitics, climate change, and international cooperation, as well as oil and gas development and regional trade. Well, that takes into account everything. Uh, she previously was a director of the Office of International Climate and Clean Energy at the U.S. Department of Energy and the Director of Integrated Research at IHS CIRA. Uh, and finally, now, last but not least, we have Jean-Francois Zeznick, uh, who is now an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins, uh, also in the neighborhood at the School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a scholar at the Middle East Institute. Uh, and uh, he has 25 years experience in finance, including uh, 10 years spent in the Middle East. So a very uh, experienced uh, group of commentators uh, to uh, offer additional comments on the meat of the afternoon's discussion, that of the IMF study on the future of oil and fiscal sustainability. So to start off our discussion, let me call to the podium uh, Mr. Jihad Azul.
Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, bon appétit. Um, thank you, Jeffrey, for, uh, for hosting us. We are very pleased to present uh, our latest work here, and we are grateful to you and to the Pearson Institute for hosting uh, this event. Let me say a few words uh, on what motivates this study. What we have tried to do, as well as what we are planning to do on this issue in the future. And then I will pass the mic to Andrea and to Heer, who will present the main findings uh, of this paper. The oil market is undergoing fundamental change and uh, post-oil future could arrive much sooner than uh, was previously anticipated. 20 years ago, we were worried that the world will run out of oil. New technologies and, and the shale revolution have put these concerns to rest. At the same time, rising concerns about climate change have been steadily permeating both policy discourse as well as also economic activity. As a result, energy efficiency has been improving and the adoption of renewable sources of energy has picked up um, speed over the last two decades. The global effort to reduce the reliance on fossil fuel will continue. This could imply significantly lower oil revenues for oil exporting countries in the foreseeable future. And the question is, why are we doing this now? We feel that uh, at the beginning of this new decade, we're at a point where it's now critical to anticipate the longer-term shift in the oil market, quantify the impact, and prepare for what could come next. Oftentimes, longer-term trends get lost in the short-term volatility in the oil market, and especially with the geopolitical developments that are taking place. And it's easy for policymakers to focus on the short-term swings and start adjusting policies based on these movements. But the short-term ups and downs should not distract us from the longer-term picture. Most countries cannot afford to wait for these shifts to materialize and should start preparing now. And this for several reasons. Let me elaborate on a few of them. One, things could accelerate quickly. Um, even at the current trends, we expect that the global demand uh, for oil uh, would peak in the next two decades, uh, and then by the end of the next 20 years, um, um, we will start seeing demand going down. But this could happen much sooner. Uh, it will happen sooner if improvements in the energy efficiency accelerate, or climate change agenda begins to materialize in various forms, carbon taxation, tighter emission standards, or other type of regulations. Projections by many energy agencies are already less optimistic than our benchmark. So uh, the challenge uh, that may um, seem remote could become increasingly urgent. The second uh, important issue is uh, all oil exporting countries will be affected regardless of how much oil reserves they have and how competitive they are. The Middle East, especially the GCC region, is best positioned 
among other oil exporting countries because of the large reserves and the lowest cost of oil production uh, that they enjoy in the world. This will help them by uh, some more time, but even the GCC region will not be immune from the ultimate decline in global demand for oil. Naturally, implications for other oil exporting countries could be far more serious, especially higher cost producers who may see their oil revenues decline well before global demand oil will peak. And this is something that in one of our next work we will do is we will extend this research to other type of oil exporting countries in the region and beyond in order to see what are the challenges as well as also the policy options, especially that in our department, 40% of the oil production is coming from countries from both Middle East and Central Asia. A third issue, and I will stop with that, is that the reform could be difficult and will take time. Although the paper focuses on the fiscal challenge, which is a tough task as it is, a more comprehensive multi-track policy response is needed to embrace the new oil market reality. In the GCC region, fiscal reforms will um, need to involve such topics as subsidy, public wages, pension, uh, public employment, and many other issues, uh, which together define the current relationship between state and citizen. And here I would like to say that over the last few years, we saw tremendous um, improvements and the response to the decline in oil shock was swift and um, made certain countries introduce important reforms like the introduction of the value-added tax, reform of subsidy, as well as also other fiscal reforms in order to put fiscal in the medium-term trajectory and start addressing this issue. Um, but there are a certain number of important questions. What will this relationship be like if oil revenues stop growing and begin to decline? It's not just a matter of tweaking policies here and there. I think it goes beyond that. It's about finding a new economic model, redefining maybe the role of the state in certain countries, and preparing the economy for more private sector-led growth agenda. Therefore, policymakers in the GCC region, uh, region, as I said, have recognized this challenge, and they have been working uh, to reduce their dependence on oil, and also by uh, working on building intergenerational saving. During the last five years, many reforms have been introduced on the public finance side, on economic diversification, on promoting SMEs, investing in technology and the industries of the future, and also and, and promoting greater employment of nationals in the private sector and increasing inclusion of women. But there is a long um, journey here uh, ahead of us. And um, the transition to a post-oil future will evoke a multitude of uh, other reforms, as well as also a shift in the investment in order to build capabilities and to strengthen the talents. These consequences need to be mapped and need to be translated into a faster and more comprehensive reform agenda. Some countries are doing this, others are in the process of doing that. So in this context, this paper is our first step in broader agenda that will examine 
what the long-term trends in the oil market means for various oil exporting regions, and what these trends mean beyond the fiscal side of the economy. Uh, with that, let me turn to Andrea, uh, who will be followed by Tuhir, to present the main findings of the paper. And again, thank you very much for hosting us this afternoon to present our analysis work, analytical work. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Let's see if this works. Uh, okay. Part one, the future one. Well, thanks a lot for having me. <clears throat> so in this presentation, we are gonna, we are gonna show some charts uh, that will go until the end of, uh, of the century. Then I thought yesterday, uh, a very famous quote came to my mind from John Minor Keynes. In the long run, we are all dead. And then so I went back and reading the entire paragraph, paragraph, and I thought it, actually it relates to what we are doing. Because in that paragraph, it, it didn't really mean, say, forget about the long run, it's too uncertainty uh, to say anything. But it actually meant that in tumultuous time, or say in time of change, as we are seeing now in the oil market, uh, you need the theory models where, uh, or theory models where everything goes back to, to the normal uh, are not very useful. So you have to think a little bit outside of the box. And policy inaction is not an option. And I think this is exactly what we'll be dealing with. In the first part, I'm going to talk about the tectonic shifts that we have seen in the oil market that we are seeing now. And then here we'll talk about the risk of policy inaction. So let me start with the first one, which is the supply. So we moved from a period of uh, oil uh, scarcity to a paradigm of uh, oil abundance. Uh, I like the, the left chart, which shows the crude oil production in the U.S. since 1920s. So it gives you a sense of the magnitude of the um, energy renaissance in the U.S. Now the U.S. is the biggest oil producer. Now these technological improvement, improvements that they have allowed the Shale oil booms are, uh, are also have also affected in other ways oil production outside the U.S. So, for example, this and next year we're going to see a uh, strong increase in production in Guyana, in Norway, in Brazil. And if we look at the proven reserves, and in this case I'm showing the Gulf countries, in part because we'll be talking about Gulf countries. So if you look at proven reserves in 2017, so they are practically higher than what they were 20 years ago, notwithstanding a strong cumulative output in that period. So this, this is the first shift, and I think we are in the middle of it. Now, we are instead starting, I would say, a sec the second tectonic shift, which is uh, uh, the world is moving away from, from oil. So uh, let, let me qualify, let me spend a little bit of time on this. So, first of all, the, the analysis we have done, first it looks to the past, trying to extrapolate the future using an empirical approach, which by definition, by construction, is a reduced form approach with some limitation. And then it's also going to use a model instead to analyze the effort of some, potential, some interesting policy scenarios. So let me start with what we have done. Um, we have, in, looking at the past, we have used a, a, a big panel data set to estimate fundamental drivers of oil consumption. Well, not surprisingly, there is a one-to-one -one effort with population, so oil consumption and population grows more or less in lockstep. More interestingly is that there is no linear relation with the GDP. And this is related to the stage of development. As the stage, as a country goes to a higher stage of development, the 
um, income elasticity of oil demand declines. Um, the third crucial element that we are going to use is our estimate of energy efficiency gains. Now, to be more precise, it can, this incorporates both really energy savings, but also substitution away from oil. So we have estimated this in, in, in the right-hand uh, chart. This is what you can see. The, the trend over the entire period can be, we are going to interpret as energy efficiency and substitution. For example, you can notice the substitution away from oil in the power generation, generation sector in the 80s for energy security concerns. Um, once you have this model in, uh, in your hands, what you can do using United Nations population predictions for the future and using the IMF uh, uh, growth forecast for all the set of countries that we have, you can not only decompose the past, but you can also say decompose and predict the future. That's what we have done. That's what you see in the right-hand side. So first of all, you decompose the, the, the past in these three big factors, big categories that I've shown you. So you can see the big role of uh, growth, GDP growth, population, the push-up demand. The black line is oil consumption. But then you have the, the extrapolated the trend efficiency, in, uh, trend in efficiency gains that is pushing down. So Cedric's paribus is nothing happens, nothing, no country is growing. The energy savings are going to push down energy, uh, oil consumption. So if you put all these things together, then in 20 years, uh, you, we are going to see a peak demand in oil. Now, that's what we call a, a current trend. So why is this a current trend? Well, as our history, of course, does not have big experience with big introduction of carbon tax, for example, or also the electrification of the transport sector. This is something that you need a model. Um, and that's what we have done. We have a model with supply and demand for oil. We have a general equilibrium model of the oil market where uh, investors' oil energy investment is forward-looking and, and, and sensitive to price and uh, expected oil prices in the future, while the demand is driven by the forces I described before, plus a non-constant uh, price elasticity, um, so reaction to prices. So this is the benchmark projection that I just showed you before. But now we can think of not is the most likely carbon tax scenario, but is a scenario that is should be consistent with a global temperature increase of two, of two Celsius, limiting that increase. So this will be a gradual carbon tax introduction. It's announced today, introduced in five years by 2024, and then it's going to raise quite a lot. It's quite ambitious carbon tax, raising $150 by 2050. So if you introduce this carbon tax, what's going to happen is that you bring forward the peak by about 10 years in oil, uh, in oil demand. You could do a similar exercise, but now you, you say, okay, let's assume we have estimated our trend efficiency. Let's assume it's faster, like two standard deviation faster than what we have seen in the past, maybe because of also uh, the revolution in the transport sector, electrification of the transport sector. Then you have the red line. Also, in this case, we are bringing forward the peak in oil demand. Now, if you put all these things together, then what you need to know to really say something about specific countries like the Gulf countries, well, you need to know the break-evens today and also expected for all of these countries. 
to understand how the market share will evolve. And that's what we have on the left. We have micro-level data on break-even costs for all the countries in our sample. So what we could calculate is that for the Gulf countries, since they have some of the lowest marginal production costs and break-evens in the oil market, they will be the last one to be kicked out of the market. Even when the size of the market shrinks, their market share actually uh, increases, uh, delaying the peak in uh, their uh, production. Now, unfortunately, for uh, I don't have time to talk about prices, but if you see at the black line, there is an interesting uh, uh, reaction of the, of the oil price in the very short term and introduction, under introduction of a carbon tax. Because a carbon tax that is announced today, since producers are very forward-looking, energy producers, uh, the cutting investment in the next, say, five, ten years could actually deliver a relatively tight oil market for an initial part. After that, of course, the carbon tax starts to kick in, demand starts to slow down, and everything declines much faster than in the previous case. Now, let me take this. Uh, if you take uh, all these pre predictions, I will pass, pass them to Tokir, and he's going to tell you the implication for Gulf countries more specifically. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, now, to translate what the future of oil means for fiscal uh, positions in the Gulf, it's important to take a look back to really appreciate the starting position for the region. The last 30 years can be roughly divided into three uh, periods. The first one is a decade between 1997 and 2007, when the oil price and oil revenue were really soaring. At that time, if you look at the red line, which is the current spending, current spending was actually increasing very gradually. And so countries were saving a lot. A lot of their infrastructure capital, a lot of their sovereign wealth funds were increasing at that time very rapidly. Then there were about seven years between 2007 and 2014. That's when oil revenue actually stopped growing. I mean, it was high, it was volatile, but the growth interrupted. But if you look at what happened to spending, spending really accelerated. That was a time when the saving rate actually began to decline. Uh, for most countries. And if you look on the right chart, the fiscal stance, which were measured by the non-oil primary balance as percent of non-oil GDP, almost all, actually all countries have been expanding uh, their non-oil primary deficit around this period. And then the shock happened. In 2014-15, oil revenue all of a sudden halved. Uh, as you can see, the oil revenue was barely enough to cover current expenditure at the time. And that's when countries began to adjust. Actually, the last Five years was probably the most reform-intensive period in the history of the region. Fiscal uh, expenditure has been reviewed. A lot of projects have been put on hold. VAT has been introduced. A lot of the reforms have been. Nevertheless, the amount of adjustment, fiscal adjustment, that has been achieved was still not enough to fully compensate for the entire fall in, in revenue. So as a result, fiscal deficits have been expanding, and if you look at the region's net financial wealth, which we take as the sum of sovereign wealth funds assets, reserves of the central bank, less government debt. It has been declining for about a decade until 2014. But in the last five years, it's been setting on a downward path. So that's the starting point. The point where uh, the region is facing challenges, where the reform agenda has started, but is still work in progress. And now let's look at, uh, to the future. Now, one important nuance here is that 
It's very tempting to focus on the peak and the timing of the peak, but actually the fiscal implications will be felt well before the peak happens. And that's because the hump-shaped path of oil demand that Andrea has presented earlier implies that the growth rate of oil revenue will begin to slow well before then. And that's the path that we see. And if you map this into uh, oil revenue as in percent of GDP, the picture looks like this. It's more or less a continuous decline uh, between now and you know, over the next several decades. And so given the challenging starting position that I outlined earlier, and this path of fiscal revenue, if you put this together and project the net financial wealth forward, it actually begins to not only decline, but begins to decline at an accelerating pace. And in about 15 years, this is assuming the fiscal stance is unchanged. I have to make this caveat. Uh, so in about 15 years, the region could turn into a net borrower. In other words, all the uh, financial buffers could be gone. Uh, now, this is not what we actually expect to happen. Uh, of course, most countries, as I mentioned, uh, are reforming, and fiscal adjustments are expected to continue. But this is a useful benchmark to keep in mind when planning the reform agenda forward. Uh, now, one aspect uh, or one view that we've heard in the region when we presented some parts of this analysis, especially from the oil companies, was that, look, you know, maybe the oil market is uh, shrinking, uh, but we are the lowest cost. We are the most competitive. We will be the last oil exporter standing. And even in the context of the decline or shrinking uh, oil market, you know, our oil revenue will continue to grow. So the market share will probably continue to, will probably increase, as Andrea uh, uh, discussed earlier, but a more aggressive kind of capture of market share will require a more aggressive pricing policy. And we ran the same exercise with two extremes. So our benchmark analysis is based on the real oil price of $55 a barrel, which is actually the price today. Um, but we, if you look at the price, uh, the black line, which is the extreme case, uh, from our perspective, $100 a barrel in real terms, which means over the next 20 years it will become $200 a barrel, uh, it only buys an extra 15 to 20 years. It doesn't change the, uh, the overall conclusion. In other words, the timing could change, but what happens to the prices doesn't really change the, the overall trend. So what should countries do? Uh, obviously, the first objective... Uh, is to achieve fiscal sustainability, which we uh, take to mean avoiding these kind of paths, avoiding a path of wealth that goes you know, south continuously. And that's uh, kind of the, a, a must. But at the same time, there are many possibilities. You, know, you can stabilize wealth at a higher level, you can stabilize it at a lower level. And that brings us to the issue of intergenerational equity. Now, uh, we have run three alternative uh, or illustrative uh, fiscal strategies to illustrate these options. The first one is what people call the permanent income hypothesis. And here I will be using the UAE as an example, but the paper has uh, similar scenarios or similar calculations for all countries. So for the UAE to maintain, to fully preserve the, the wealth they have, and here wealth is defined comprehensively. In other words, it's financial wealth, it's the net value of the oil that is still underground, as well as a rough estimate of the infrastructure capital that uh, UAE has, has created. Because the spending is so far off the permanent income hypothesis benchmark, 
to pre fully preserve wealth will require a fiscal adjustment uh, from nearly 30% of nominal GDP today to mid-single digits in one move. Now, that's unrealistic. And even if it was realistic, it would be too disruptive. Naturally, most countries have opted for a more gradual approach. Now, the second illustrative scenario is what we call the moderate gradualism, where the fiscal adjustment happens more gradually. But the important, new, or the important detail here is that when fiscal adjustment is gradual, financial buffers continue to melt. And here, uh, we call it moderate because here wealth is allowed to gradually decline but stabilize at about half of its initial level. So this makes it easier for the, um, in the short run. And in the third scenario, which we call the extreme gradualism, where wealth almost completely runs out, uh, you see that the fiscal effort uh, on the right-hand side, on the right uh, chart, the fiscal effort in the beginning is very slow. Uh, and that uh, leads to a, a much faster depletion of wealth. So these are the intergenerational trade-offs. What can we glean from this? There are three things. First of all, delaying or moving gradually doesn't make the problem go away. In other words, the fiscal adjustment still needs to happen. In fact, if you, the later the start or the more gradually you start, the faster you have to go. So in the case of if you compare the black line and the red line, the black line starts very slowly. But the speed, the slope afterwards is much uh, steeper than in the case of the red line. Moreover, if you delay a gradual approach also means that the amount of fiscal adjustment in the long run has to be higher. So you see the red line has to go above the, the blue line. And similarly, in the case of the extreme gradualism, it has to go even higher. Why is that? Because as wealth is exhausted, the returns that current sovereign wealth funds generate, which are an important source of revenue for these countries, they also disappear. And that permanently tightens the fiscal space available to these countries. So this is the intergenerational trade-off. Where are these countries, or what are these uh, uh, countries' revealed preferences? If you look at the, well, these are the projections from uh, um, October. If you look at the actual projections of fiscal balances, they seem to be more or less in the neighborhood of the intermediate case, the case of uh, moderate gradualism, which, as we saw earlier, means that going forward, the speed of fiscal adjustment will need to accelerate. And so finally, let me say a few words about what will it take. Of course, as Jihad mentioned, you know, these are uh, very highly country-specific uh, issues. You know, how exactly to go about fiscal adjustment uh, will vary from country to country. But there are a few considerations that are important to all. First of all, and the natural thing to say would be continue with economic diversification. That is true. It will be extremely important to continue to diversify the economies. But economic diversification is not going to solve the fiscal problem alone. This is important to keep in mind. Why? Because right now, oil GDP produces, well, about 80% of the oil GDP is captured as fiscal revenue. But only 10% of non-oil GDP is, goes to the fiscal, as fiscal revenue. So even if you replace all of the oil activity with non-oil activity, you are still going to end up with a big fiscal gap. And that's why non-oil revenue will need to grow. But non-oil revenue alone will also be uh, insufficient. To fully replace the oil revenue, the effective tax on, on non-oil GDP will have to increase from about 10% today to about 50%. 
These are Scandinavian levels, one of the highest levels in the world. It's hard to imagine. And that's why governments will probably also need to downsize. So the, the fiscal strategy will have to be very comprehensive. And as Jihad mentioned in the introduction, because of the central uh, role that fiscal policy plays in the lives of the region, most likely fiscal reforms will trigger a lot of other socioeconomic consequences. And so mapping those and planning this transition comprehensively will be the biggest challenge. Let me stop here, and I look forward to our discussions. Thanks, and I'd like to open my time up here by just thanking the authors. Their paper is extremely timely, it's well-written, it's easy to understand, and it elucidates a, a really serious problem that I think we should be thinking more about. So I'd just like to thank them for their work and for the presentations that they just gave. Um, I think a lot of what I'm doing up here really as a discussant is coming up here as an energy and economics generalist and kind of going on some of the softer aspects of this report and reiterating some of the wonderful things that they said. But I'd like to start out by saying that you don't have to think that peak oil demand is coming soon, nor do you have to think that it's a spiky peak that we will then fall off of. If you think demand is going to rise for a while and then flatten out and that this will take a long time, this report is still for you. This still matters. You don't need a steep fall off in order for these issues to be really important. Um, and I'll just point out, we saw what happened to oil prices in 2014 and 2015 as we saw a supply-side shock from all the new production that came on from the United States. And we saw what that did to oil prices. Well, you think of a small shock from the demand side with demand decreasing. You could also see that in terms of prices. Um, this is a problem that you don't need a lot of demand change in order for this to matter. So even if you're not a big believer that we're going to take strong actions on climate change, this report's still for you. Um, the world is definitely not running out of oil. In fact, it's not even running out of inexpensive oil. Um, however, we are going to be in the oil business for a while, um, no matter what we do for climate change. And that's because oil is just a darn useful fuel. It's incredibly energy dense, and it's fantastic for the uses that we really rely on it for, um, particularly heavy transportation for petrochemicals. Those are going to be really hard uses to replace. And so I'm, I'm not a believer that we're going to see a hard peak in oil and fall off the cliff. I think it's going to take a while. But I still think these issues are incredibly important. I'll add that the kind of change that we're talking about for the GCC economies really requires a, an important social change, a complete rework in how the citizens of these countries relate to their government. To this point, these governments have really been set up with their primary purpose as being distributing resource rents to the population. And they've done this in a number of ways, through very large and well-remunerated um, public sectors. They've done it through subsidies of various kinds for fuels, and then also for water, which in the Middle East is very connected to fuels. Um, this is going to be a really hard thing to change. It, it requires a complete rethink about how people think about their government. And I think we, we focus on the fiscal aspects, and they are incredibly important. But the social aspects of how this will work out will also be really important. 
They also have to think about, because governments have had so much money to invest, they've made up a lot of investments in the private sector. Um, I'll use Saudi Arabia as an example here because it's the country that I know the best. It's very difficult. Very few enterprises in Saudi are not connected to the government in some way. The government has made a lot of investments, and in many ways that's been a good use of funds. But on the other hand, it tends to crowd out private investment. So as they're focusing on we want more private investment, we want more private enterprise, they're really kind of fighting their own instincts to take the best opportunities for themselves. And that's going to be a really challenging thing for the government to overcome. I'd also like to point out that there's some really important differences among the countries in the GCC. We tend to think of them all as being very resource rich, and we think of them all in a bundle. But we need to divide those out a little bit. Um, and a good way to think about this is the kind of resources and wealth that they have per capita. If you think of Qatar or the UAE, Kuwait, they have very, very high wealth per capita. And this problem is a bit easier for them. They just have more running room in order to fix the problem. Um, the tiny countries or the ones with smaller resource wealth, Oman, Bahrain, have had this problem for a while and are already facing it um, to some extent. But the country that I'm going to talk about a little just to wrap up my comments is Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia has the second largest resource reserves in the world, and the first country of Venezuela is kind of a mess. So we'll, we'll think of Saudi Arabia as being number one in that department. But they face a huge challenge because they are the largest country in the region. They have the largest population. And they also have a significant population that um, is in the middle and lower economic classes. They're not, it's not a consistently wealthy population. It's not the Mercedes driving shakes that people commonly think of in this country. They have a large and a diverse population. Um, when you think about the, the main industries that run the economy there, oil and gas, petrochemicals, refining, these are not employment-heavy occupations. They're very high return on capital, but they don't require a lot of labor. And so the Saudis and other countries in the region face the real challenge of providing jobs and opportunities for their young populations. They have a significant youth bulge, and these youth are pretty well educated, and they aren't jobs ready for them. And the traditional path for these folks has been to go and work for the government. The jobs are well-paid, they're pretty cushy, they're um, quite prestigious, and that's the path that young people want to follow. So when you think about how to do this, you have to think not just about fiscal changes, but about changes in mindset. What do your young people want to do when they grow up? What kind of opportunities are available to them? Where will they have an exciting, fulfilling career? And so that's going to require a, a real change in mindset that I think is going to be a challenge. I particularly like the discussion in the reports of intergenerational equity. I think it's a really important subject. I also think in the graphs that you just put up um, showed that, that to some extent that ship has sailed. Um, I don't think that true intergenerational equity in these countries is going to be possible. I think the changes needed are so great. And frankly, the population that's been alive through this historical boom is so well off that that may not be maintainable. And so thinking about how to go from here to there while maintaining social cohesion and making these important changes, it's a soft problem rather than an economic problem, but it's a really important one. 
Finally, I'll wrap up by saying that the difference between the ambition that you're seeing in the various plans and then what's actually happening, happening on the ground, the difference is quite large. And again, I'll focus on Saudi because I know it the best. The Saudi Vision 2030 is a grand plan. It has a lot of things in it. And when I talk to, to colleagues and folks I know in the kingdom, they usually say, if we can get 10 or 15% of that, that would be fantastic. But it's often focused on real moonshot sorts of things, rather than things, things that look sexy on the paper, rather than some of the nuts and bolts, nitty-gritty things that need to happen. And you also, in the case of the kingdom, see their government in some ways working at cross-purposes to the things that they're trying to do. On the one hand, they're putting it, they're having large investment summits and, and advertising themselves as a great place to invest. However, you're seeing things happening on the political side with Jamal Khashoggi, with the, uh, the roundup in the, in the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh. You're seeing them working at cross-purposes, doing things that discourage rather than encourage um, foreign private investment. And so there's some real challenges, but I think these challenges are as much cultural and in the relationship of government and people than they are fiscal. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you very much. Uh, the uh, uh, it was a great presentation. I have nothing left to say now, but, uh, um, but uh, thank you for the report. It's a very, very interesting report. It's very timely, of course, and it's very worthwhile. And, of course, I thank Peterson uh, Institute for inviting me to uh, discuss. I have, of course, many, many uh, uh, things I wanted to say, but have, they have been said already, so I try to perhaps have a more macro, microeconomic approach to, to the issue. Um, I, th I think that, you know, to discuss what's going to happen to the price of oil in the future is, of course, very difficult. Uh, you know, we go from 20, uh, 2014 when the price was 120, and of course, income has declined. But then from 1980 and to 2014, income went up very quickly. The big difference, as was pointed out in the report, was the fact that after 2007, they started the, the Gulf countries started spending more money uh, than they were taking in. Uh, but they still have a lot of cash reserves. I think one of the problems I see uh, is that asking for fiscal discipline is, is very good. It's very easy. It's uh, not very much for us Americans to say anything about. We're just uh, approving a $1 trillion deficit. So, uh, you know, uh, asking the Saudis to improve is perhaps a little bit uh, uh, humoristic, actually, in some ways. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I think um, the, the, the asking a population which is mostly below the age of 25 to accept fiscal discipline in the future is really bringing about this problem you mentioned about the generational wealth. Um, I think asking the government to spend less money is going to go nowhere, and uh, they cannot afford not to have fiscal deficits for the near future because they have to make the transition. What I would like to point out here is that there are various schools of thoughts in the kingdom in particular uh, on how to go about going to Vision 2030 and beyond. Everybody agrees that Vision 2030, having neom and robot cities and things like this, 
I haven't had, I haven't heard many positive reports within the kingdom about that. Nevertheless, they have the idea. But let me say that I think the uh, the, the the discussion, the, the the battle, if you like, in the bureaucrats in in the kingdom today is between two view, two visions. There's the vision 2030 of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman who wants Saudi Arabia to be basically the new Germany uh, of, of the future, uh, using cheap oil and, uh, and all the capital they have. But there is also another view, which was the view of Khaled al-Faleh, the minister, former minister of oil and former chairman of Saudi Ramco, which, in my view, in the long run, will come back and win. Because this view is uh, really to diversify away from oil, but using oil. In other words, take the molecule, the carbon molecules and increase the value of the carbon molecule. And there has been major, major progress in the kingdom on this matter. The chemical industry in particular has been extremely successful. Now, of course, um, the uh, selling oil at $120 was very pleasant, so they perhaps not have not they may not have put as much emphasis on developing the downstream as they should have, but Khaled al-Fali in particular wanted to do that very much. He wanted to have 10 million barrels a day of just refining. He wanted he, he did this big deal, $20 billion with Dow Chemical. Uh, they have a similar deal with Sumitomo. They, um, they're really pushing to absorb SABIC, Maybe they've been pushed themselves to take SABEC, but that's another uh, story. The fact is, they can make the kingdom make much more money from their oil and natural gas than, they, uh, than just selling on the, on the market. I, it, it would be a, a very interesting study to do for Peterson or, or the IMF, but to find out what, in, what value you can add to the carbon molecules by going downstream in a very heavy way. The um, Saudi Ramco today has this joint venture with Dow Chemical. Uh, Dow, uh, it's called Dow Chem it has another name now, but anyway, it's called Sadara. And their purpose, of course, is to produce a lot of very advanced chemicals, which they're doing. And I agree with uh, Samantha that that doesn't add enormous amounts of jobs. But they're well-paid jobs, I might say. And they are Saudis. They are Saudi jobs. If you go to, to uh, Sadara, you will find that 70% of the employees are Saudis. But they've also did, at the request of uh, Khaled al-Fali, they developed an enormous 1,200... I think it's 12 square kilometer uh, zone right next to Sadara and next to the Total refinery there to take the products directly from those plants and go into providing feedstock to a whole bunch of small companies. And those are job creators. And as you go downstream more and more, you make more and more value to your, uh, to your uh, carbon molecules. Now, the point which is very well taken is that part of the problem of the Saudi, uh, of the Saudi development is that they have no taxes. Companies pay very, very little taxes. So if you develop, if you take advantage of ethane at $1.75 a million BTU and you pay no taxes, there's no advantage to the government. At, at all. But as the taxes increase, Saudi Arabia will become modern if it accepts the idea of taxes. Well, that's really, in essence, 
And that, of course, make people cry in Saudi Arabia, you know. Uh, they're not that different than here. Um, so the, the, uh, the, the fact is, though, that if the value of those molecules multiply by 3 to 12 is my guess, depending on the products you make downstream, you create a lot of jobs and you increase the value. Then you can decrease your oil production. I hate to sound myself so old, to make myself so old, but in the 70s, when I was working in the Development Bank of Saudi Arabia, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to move away. We were told by the Minister of Finance of the time that we have to really develop the country so that it is no longer dependent on oil. That was in the 75-76 era. So things haven't changed that much. It's just the ways things are, uh, are done have changed. Uh, but I think that is really the other school of thought in the kingdom. Now, the twain will meet, obviously. They will try to get as many uh, IT companies to come and invest. And they've had a little bit of success. Apparently, the, uh, the foreign investment has gone up a little bit so far this year. But uh, there, there are a lot of issues that have to be resolved, including the Shamaj Khashoggi issue and so on, which, of course, are very, very sad. But my, my point, if you like, in response to the, to the report is that I just don't see fiscal discipline as being uh, viable in the Gulf in particular. Um, but they're also going to eat their nest egg. No doubt that the $450 billion held by Sama, perhaps at the, uh, federal, at the Federal Reserve here, will probably decline. But it has to be invested properly, and it has to be invested perhaps where they already have a natural advantage, which is what uh, Al-Faliye wanted, uh, in downstream and going downstream in a big way, not just in Saudi Arabia, but going downstream in Indonesia, in Korea, in China, in, in Motiva, in the United States, the largest refinery in the country. Uh, they, they can do that, and I think they will do that, and that will bring a lot of more wealth to the kingdom. What the point is, is that today, the Saudis in particular, but the Saudis in the UAE are totally dominant in oil and natural gas for the case of Qatar. They have to switch from being dominant in, in oil and natural gas to being dominant in the downstream part of it. Another thing where they also have a natural advantage, uh, and I will uh, conclude on that, is that they, they, are very, uh, they have a lot of sun. And because of this, they've been trying, uh, with very mediocre success, developing uh, solar energy. There are a lot of problems with the technology today, which is not quite adequate for countries with too much sun. And that's a big issue for them. So on the other hand, they are... Um, technology takers from this. They are uh, buying a lot of, uh, of, uh, of uh, technology from China, from the United States, from Europe, and they, they are bringing it. I mean, Dubai today has an amazing uh, solar park. Uh, the, um, even Egypt has a very amazing solar park, but we're not uh, talking about Egypt here. My point here is that they have to go further than that. They have to use some of their wealth to actually buy their way into developing their, uh, their renewable uh, technology. They have to develop it themselves. 
they have uh, many, many research centers for chemicals. Why can't they have research centers for the technology of, uh, of renewables? Then they can be, instead of, <clears throat> excuse me, instead of being a technology taker, they be, can be, again, as they are today in both chemicals and oil, uh, technology sellers. And uh, that will replace the wealth they're losing. So I'm not as pessimistic, in a way, as the charts are showing, uh, where the wealth going down to nothing. The wealth will go down because they have to invest. And it's going to take many years before it comes back. But I think with a little luck, they might uh, weather the storm. Thank you. Let me call the uh, speakers up to the podium now uh, for questions from the audience. Uh, while, they're, while they're making their way up, uh, let me remind you, there's a copy of the study, or there have been copies of the study outside, and it's also available on the uh, uh, IMF website. Uh, and this is what it looks like, not too thick, uh, and now you have a good introduction to it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's worth reading. So we have about 20 minutes for uh, questions uh, and responses from the panel. Uh, I'd ask that you make your questions in the form of a question and succinct. Identify yourself first, please. Uh, and uh, the floor is open. Yes, sir. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jonathan Elkind. I'm with the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Um, thank you to the authors uh, and the team that was involved in preparing this uh, uh, analysis. I look forward to reading it. Um, I had a question about the, um, the demand expectations and kind of sensitivity cases uh, that, that might arise. Um, I think many of us agree with the point that was made by Samantha that the, um, uh, all of the things being equal uh, reasonable to expect a long-term future, or a excuse me, a you know a significant future for oil and gas demand continuing. But of course, the climate change issue isn't going away either, um, and other environmental concerns don't seem to be going away either. Um, to what extent did you look at um, sensitivity cases like what happens if? concerns about um, single-use plastics or other um, things that could have a, a significant demand if they really begin to bite? And then how seriously does that affect the macroeconomic outlooks uh, and other uh, considerations that you were uh, focusing on? Thank you. Who wants to start? Sure. Andrea. So we, we focused more on the climate change and various scenarios, in part because we have a model for that. So we can model taxation, we can model carbon taxes. Now, for the, um, for the energy efficiency scenario, then you can use in principle, you can, the model is relatively stylized, so we do not have the single plastic use. We do not have, for example, a petrochemical sector in the model. So what you can... Uh, what you can do, you can look at the efficiency, the, the scenario under the faster efficiency gains, and that would be the one where there is substitution um, 
instead of single-use plastic, you are substituting with something else. So my short answer is that we have not analyzed cases like uh, single-use plastics, but it's something that you can look within the, ener the faster energy efficiency, the faster efficiency and substitution. So what we do not have, it's not a micro, it's not a bottom-up uh, approach in this sense, it's, 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 it's a macro model. Maybe I could just also add that we have um, compared our projections. So that two things. First, we also compared our projections with other major energy uh, companies. So if you look at the long-term forecast by OPEC, by uh, International Energy Agency, by BP and others, almost everyone expects uh, a major slowdown in growth, at least in the next 20 years. Now, the timing of it, of course, is sensitive. So we've talked about a bit about the carbon tax scenario. We've talked a little bit about the impact of different regulations. There could also be an upside risk. So the, the, um, the actual peak could actually be later, depending on how the geopolitics and kind of short-term factors uh, evolve. I think the main point from the paper is that it's a bit like riding a bike. You know, the exact arrival may, not be, may be highly uncertain, but as long as you move in that direction, eventually you'll get there. So the world is moving in that direction. And I think the speed is not as critical. As long as, you know, that's the direction the countries would need to prepare. Uh, but it begs the question, does the fiscal, the path of fiscal sustainability, uh, is that consistent with the path of political sustainability? <laughs> I think going back to uh, the discussions um, uh, approach to the issue, I think, was r really what we wanted this paper to be, is to frame the discussion around not only the short-term volatility of oil price mm -hmm. and not the short-term shocks, because if you look at the short-term shocks, geopolitical events took place over the last six months mm -hmm. without really affecting the price of oil. Therefore, uh, the, the idea behind this paper is, A, to frame few number of policy issues. One is the trade-offs. Yeah. Second is the fact that, uh, and trade-offs between um, different approaches to address uh, intergenerational issues, trade-offs between different type of policy instruments, and also uh, in terms of being more innovative because technology also could help make energy becoming um, I would say even environmental more friendly. This is the first objective, is, is to um, use this um, analysis to frame the discussion on the trade-offs. The second thing is to say that countries are different, and therefore their trajectory, trajectory is going to be different. But even small countries with high buffers, it matters for them too. It's not only an important issue for Saudi, which is the largest economy and the highest populated economy. Therefore, it matters for all these countries too. Three is all the diversification strategy over the last few decades were done, I would say, a bit without any constraint. We're trying to say that the diversification is within the constraints of how you, you're going to allocate resources yeah. and what type of model you would build that will make you fiscally sustainable, will make the best use of your resources, and also that is sociopolitically feasible. Therefore, this is how we want this paper to be. 
And this is why we, I said in the beginning, it's a first step in broader agenda of analysis that will tackle demand, will tackle also more uh, details about the um, fiscal policy options, and also will tackle um, maybe how to um, um, uh, allocate long-term investment around maybe education or other type of activities, as uh, uh, Jean-Francois was mentioning, mm -hmm. maybe at the micro level that could have, uh, at the end, macroeconomic impact. Very good. Thank you. So I'm Bob Doner from the Atlantic Council. I was trying to figure out what was driving the results on demand. Look through the paper, and it seems to me that there are two things. One is a sharp slowdown in the rate of global per capita income growth. And the second is that uh, oil use efficiency continues at past rates. Uh, it seems in the latter that there's an awful lot of uncertainty that's being swept into a, a single assumption. But how much variation do you need uh, for those two things to ha not have oil demand peak or you know, perhaps stabilize or grow very slowly? Let me take also this one, which is... Uh, some sense um, more technical. So yeah, I yeah I agree. Of course, the slowdown in uh, GDP growth also we have some convergence for emerging markets which are going very fast now to some frontier in the in the long term future. There is also one element, another additional element, which is this nonlinear relation between oil consumption and the stage of development. So the income elasticity of oil demand declines. So there is eventually, eventually there is a disconnect by the decoupling between uh, oil consumption and growth. But this is going to play a role really, really farther away in the future. Now, in terms of the estimates of what we call this, this trend, you know, which we call energy efficiency or slash substitution, there is uncertainty indeed. And that's why in one of our scenarios, we have tried two standard deviation because it's an estimate. So there, are some, there is a, um, a confidence interval around. And we have tried the two standard deviation faster uh, energy efficiency, faster trend. You could do the opposite. You say, okay, what if instead the world is not going in that direction? We lean towards faster, in part because the electrification of the transport sector can be incorporated in that, in that assumption, in part because probably policymakers, if they want to have robust policy, they care more about the downside risk. I mean, if things go really well, in some sense, you have more room and spaces, right? You are less concerned. So we were more focused on... Uh, what if it goes wrong? So we have emphasized more the downside part. Just em emphasize what Andrea said, that within the GDP growth, there are two channels working at the same time. Uh, so the slowing of the per capita GDP growth, but also this nonlinearity aspect. In other words, when, as more countries grow richer, their growth becomes more, uh, less oil-intensive. So it's really hard to see a scenario where there wouldn't be a peak. The timing would shift depending on, you know, if there is a higher growth rate, global growth rate, it means that the second channel would become more prominent, maybe a little bit later, but with the same result. And also there is a third channel, which is the population growth. Uh, that one is expected to slow down significantly. Yes, sir. Good afternoon. My name is Peter Sturm. I'm a retired OECD employee. My question is principally to the authors of the report. And uh, the question is, what is your 
baseline assumptions in your fiscal projections about uh, privatization policies ongoing in the GCC area. Uh, how will the changes in these assumptions change your fiscal projections and may they even have an effect of the overall real outcomes? Uh, so the projections in the paper were based on aggregate uh, or fiscal aggregates and didn't uh, kind of go into the specific policies such as privatization. Uh, so we don't have any estimate about how would you know, alternative privatization agenda would affect these results. But in general, privatization is a conversion of uh, some, you know, uh, one form of wealth into another form of wealth. And uh, our fiscal scenarios are based on a total concept of wealth, which includes infrastructure capital, which includes you know, public enterprises, which includes oil underground and financial assets. So reallocating of that wealth wouldn't change the total. The real question is how would it be managed? Would selling a particular government uh, enterprise and you know, making this into a financial asset improve its management or not? I think that really depends. Um, I would add... There is one dimension to, um, to add to that is the impact of privatization on the size of the state and uh, on the expenditure side. Yes, definitely, it will have an impact on the expenditure leg of the fiscal equation. Uh, but um, I think uh, maybe Samantha mentioned that some of the key assets are capital intensive and therefore Privatization may not have the desired impact in terms of reducing uh, wage bill because of the nature of uh, of the assets to be to be sold to the private sector. But yes, there there will be an impact on 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 the exp on the public expenditures. Yes, Jean Francois. Um, just a, a, an issue which I think Samantha actually uh, talked about a little bit is that what we're seeing oftentimes today is in spite of all the notions of um, helping the private sector and so on, I find that the big um, sovereign wealth funds of the Gulf are really crowding out the private sector and making it very difficult for them to do anything. I mean, one of the most successful companies in the, in the entire Middle East in terms of renewables was a Saudi company called Aqua, and uh, they just got the call saying they'd been taken over by the PIF. And the PIF is the most opaque uh, company in the country, even though it's the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. I think we could do the same. We could see the same in the UAE. So we're actually going at cross purposes, as, as was mentioned, in many ways. And uh, that is something they're going to have to resolve somehow. Next question. Yes. Hi, my name is Angel Wei, and I'm with Hong Kong Phoenix Television. So uh, my question is, uh, with the outbreak of coronavirus in China, would there be any impact on the global oil market as there's uh, rising concerns about Chinese economy, global economy, because of the coronavirus? Um, would the oil price um, demand or demand slide further amid to the coronavirus outbreak? Thank you. Well, the purpose of this study is not to answer these kind of short-term questions, how the oil market is, is responding to several shocks. Uh, it's more to, again, I think this is also one of the messages that we want um, the, the study to, um, <coughs> sorry, 
to focus on is beyond the short-term volatility that we are seeing, um, and then we will keep seeing volatility in the oil market, although the price of the oil today is $55, which we were discussing on our way to here, which is the assumption we have in the study. I think the, the idea is not to keep the focus in the short-term following up how the oil market is evolving, especially from the oil producing side, but it's to look at the long-term uh, issues and to try to put into the, this planning equation several variables, including the sovereign wealth fund's role, which is also different from one country to another. Therefore, we what we are trying to focus on is more that there is a long-term trend that is clearly showing that both demand of oil will go down, that technology could accelerate that and some other factors, policy factors like uh, um, addressing climate change issues. And those are issues that, if not addressed early on, would require, um, I would say, stronger adjustment uh, down the road. Yes, Samet. Sure. I mean, I'll add just very briefly, this, this is the kind, of, the kind of event that we will see on the long and very bumpy road towards the decline that these, the long-term decline that this report describes. But I mean, in, in, in a very, as a very brief answer to your question, yes, it's absolutely affecting oil demand right now. Um, it's down about 3 million barrels a day, which is Iran, más o menos? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a serious impact to oil demand, um, mostly because of travel and air travel. If it, if it continues, and one of two things can happen, um, OPEC and OPEC Plus will reduce production or prices will go down, one or, one or the other, um, and we'll see what happens. But this is one of those short-term bumps that will happen, and we never know when and we never know why they're going to happen, but they will. However, the report that they've put together is really about more the long-term trends rather than these short bumps that we're always going to have. I think we have time for one more question. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I'm Nasser Kilji. I'm with the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, I essentially have two questions. Uh, like you mentioned, Saudi Arabia has the second largest reserves of oil, clearly, but also Saudi Arab Arabia has the two holiest places in Islam, which is a source of a lot of tourism. And I'm sure at this present time, Probably the government spending on to, uh, the pilgrims and, you know, these pilgrimages is more on infrastructure than what they take in. Have you factored that source of revenue, which is going to be permanent as the world population increases? That's my first question. The second one has related to that has to do with the sizable expat population in that region which is not really citizens. They're basically resident, non-residents even, with absolutely no rights. So when you have this change in fiscal revenues and similarly downstream industries, how would that impact the entire region? I'm not only talking about the Gulf, but I'm talking about the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. Have you looked at the general equilibrium effects? Thank you. So on, on the first part, uh, you know, regarding the development of tourism and, and uh, uh, certainly all countries have been making a lot of effort to in, in that direction. If you look at the UAE, Bahrain, every single country has been trying to develop tourism, trying to develop other non-oil sectors, and they've uh, achieved quite a bit of success. In fact, if you look at the share of non-oil GDP in total GDP, it's about 50% in almost every country. 
Now, the, the, the difficulty has been translating this into fiscal revenue because the fiscal, uh, because the rate of taxation is so low, even though countries have achieved quite a bit of non-oil growth, non-oil revenue has lagged behind. And in fact, about half of the average government revenue in the region is now covered by, still covered by uh, oil receipts. So the question will be, in parallel with these efforts to develop tourism and other non-oil sectors, can countries also diversify their revenue and strengthen their fiscal uh, positions? And uh, on the second part of the expat population, I think this is a question that all countries are considering seriously as part of their visions. And the revealed preference, so to speak, if you look at the policies of the last two, three years, has been to try to integrate the export population more in the labor market and try to integrate the labor markets a bit more. Almost every country has today introduced long-term visas, has eased, uh, or residency visas, has eased restrictions on uh, retirees, on high-skilled professionals, on students, etc. So there is a movement toward attracting more and retaining more talent in the region, uh, which certainly is a direction that would benefit the economies in the long run. Yeah. I, I Final quick word. Okay. I, I mentioned in, when I was talking that uh, Saudi Arabia in particular will become modern when they have taxes, right? And I think what, uh, what Tohir just mentioned is, is just right. Uh, I, I think that the tourism uh, with the pilgrimage is, of course, extremely important, has been important since, since the birth of Islam, so even before. So uh, that's not going to change, but yes, it will only bring money to the coffers of the state if there are taxes to, to tax these things. The, I think the, the key issue, then, and I think the, 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 the point is really well made by this gentleman, uh, the, the problem of the foreign workers. I mean, you have still to this day, the Saudis have lost one and a half million foreign workers in the last 18 months or two years. They, they still have about 10 million foreign workers. But it's nothing compared to Qatar, where Qatar you have about 3 million people with 300,000 Qataris. And that is not sustainable. I don't know how they live with it. I mean, they have their own ways, but it is not sustainable in the long run. So uh, the same really applies to the UAE in a less uh, stringent way, but less acute way, but it's there as well. And I don't think we have an answer for this. I, I certainly don't. Samantha, you bet you do. I don't know that I have an answer, but I think when you think about expatriate workers in the GCC, they come in two very different categories, and you really have to think about them differently. One is the very high-paid, highly skilled labor that they've brought in to do certain things. And there's definitely work towards greater education amongst the local population and preparing the local population for those jobs. But there's another flavor of expatriate labor, and that is very low-paid labor, um, a lot of it from Southeast Asia and the Philippines that are doing very different kinds of jobs and they're paid very poorly. And they, in many ways, help keep that economy going. And they keep it going at a rate that you could not get a local to work at that rate to keep those kinds of things going. And so when you think about expats, you have to think about both of them. And there, there's big pushes. Um, I was in Oman recently, and you really see this. It's a big push to get Omanis to do various kinds of jobs and to hire Omanis, and that's really important. But they need to think about how will their economy function if they want to have fewer expatriates. It's funny to hear about, you know, high unemployment and all these things 
in an economy with 10 million expatriate workers. But that's the way it works, and they need to think about can they set up their economy and can they afford to pay locals to do some of these jobs because it's not set up that way now. Okay, the last word for Jihad Azul. I think uh, on that, um, one has to put things in perspective. If you go back 10 years ago, nobody would have thought that people would be willing to pay taxes and that VAT will be introduced, introduced or the price of energy will be done on a market basis. 2014, 2015, um, sharp decline in oil price. And then we saw government going into this direction and then also putting part of their targets to balance their budget. Uh, this is the example, for example, for Saudi in the 2030 vision. Therefore, I think we are in a dynamic process. It's not something that is rigid uh, and things are not moving. Second is countries are different. And I think it's important to introduce this nuance. You have countries with low national population with a lot of reserves, and you have countries with large local population with maybe less reserves. And those are two different dynamics. When you have larger population, you have larger local market, and therefore the dynamic is different, which I think leads us to say that when you move into the policy recommendation, it has to be on a country-by-country basis. Three, uh, uh, that we are moving from a growth that is infrastructure-led to growth that is more, I would say, led by integrating those economies into the global value chain, which means that even the nature of the talents or the foreign labor that is going to be attracted will be different. And this is uh, what Tukhir was mentioning. We are seeing a change in the regulations in order to uh, have, through greater integration of expats who are living for a long, uh, long period or staying for life, to have their, uh, their place in the economy. I think what we are seeing is, is, is a transformation, and that this transformation gradually, hopefully, will lead to an economy that not only the non-oil GDP will grow, but the nature of the non-oil GDP will create more jobs. And then a fiscal policy that has a wider range of tools in order to address the long-term issues, but also the conjunctural issues. Thank you very much. It leaves, just leaves it to me to thank the IMF team for coming here and bringing us their, their latest research on this very important and uh, not so easy uh, uh, policy uh, set of issues. And to thank Samantha and Jean-Francois for their comments. Uh, thank you all for your presentations. Thank you for coming. Meeting adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.